Well, there was a chicken and a pig who heard about a program to feed the hungry. And they were talking amongst themselves about how they might be able to help. And the hen said, you know, we could provide uh, bacon and eggs for breakfast. And the uh, hog said to the hen, well, that's easy for you to say because on your part, it's just a contribution. But for me, it's a total commitment. (laughs) As we turn in our Bible today to Luke chapter 14 and verses 25 and following, what we're going to see is that Jesus tells us that he doesn't want us just to be like a chicken where we make a contribution, giving a little bit of our time or our treasure. But what he wants is fully devoted followers of his, men and women, boys and girls, who are sold out for him, those who have counted the cost of the cross and are saying, I want to follow you and live for you. As we look at Luke fourteen twenty-five through 28, it tells us now great multitudes were going along with him. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me, And does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Now, most people would be pleased to see so many that were following them. But as Jesus turns around, as he's traveling to Jerusalem and he sees the great crowd, he's more concerned with the quality than the quantity of his followers. Remember, as we've been going through our series in Luke, we've seen that there were crowds Uh, many times around him because of the miracles he was doing, and they wanted to see the next show. What's the next thing Jesus is going to do? So many who were there were, were just following along for the show. There were others that wanted a Messiah, but not the Messiah that God had said was coming. They wanted a military Messiah. They wanted somebody to overthrow the Romans who were in power there in Jerusalem at the time, occupying the land of Israel. And as Jesus is going to Jerusalem, he's already told us very clearly in Luke chapter 13 that he's going there to die. As he goes to Jerusalem, he knows that he's going to face the Romans, not to overthrow them, but it's so that he can die on a Roman cross, so that he can give his life as a payment for the penalty of sin that we all owe, that penalty of death. And as Jesus is going there, he wants the people who are following him to understand fully why he is going and what it will cost. And so he says in verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brothers, sisters, yes, even his own life, you cannot be my disciple. Now, reading that, you may say, well, wait a minute, I've read through the Bible and that doesn't doesn't sound like the Bible. I mean, one of the Ten Commandments is to honor our father and mother. Ephesians 5.25 says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. We're even told to to love our enemies. So why is Jesus saying we need to hate parents and spouses and siblings and even ourselves? We have to start with a definition of what hate is. When we hear hate, you're probably immediately thinking of the way a dictionary like Webster's would define it. Webster's Dictionary says hate is intense hostility and aversion. An extreme dislike, it's loathing. Of someone. But I want you to remember whenever you're reading the Bible that you need to read it in the context, not only the context of what's before and after it, not isolating something, but also understanding the times in the audience. So the context is a first century audience made up of Jews. And in the Semitic culture, they had a different definition for hate than our dictionary definition. Jesus' call to hate those we love is not telling us to have this detestable feeling toward them. Rather, it refers to a difference in degree. 
It's where one is loved so much that it makes our love for the other look like hate in comparison. You can see that if you look at the book of Malachi. It's the last book of the Old Testament. And in Malachi chapter 1 and verses 2 through 3, it says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I've made uh, his mountain a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Now, who are Jacob and Esau? We remember Abraham is the father of nations. And Abraham was promised that he would have a son of promise who would be the line that ultimately the Messiah would come from. Now, because of his uh, impatience and, and not trusting in God, he, he took his uh, concubine and he had a son named Ishmael. Ishmael became uh, the, the head of the Arab nations. When you look at the conflict in our world today, it goes all the way back to this. You had Ishmael who became the line of the Arab nations. And then there was a son that was born to Abraham and Sarah, Isaac. And Isaac was the line of the Jewish lineage. And Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And the line was traced not through Esau, but through Jacob, who was renamed Israel by God. And when, it look, when you look here and it says, I've hated Esau, this son of Abraham, ultimately, this grandson, this one that was promised, it doesn't mean that God destroyed him. In fact, as you read through the Bible, you see that Esau was blessed. He was a person who had property and possessions and all kinds of things. But when you look at the blessings that were given to Jacob, ultimately Israel, in that lineage, he was blessed so much more in abundance, it looked like Esau was desolate in comparison. Another example is found in 2 Samuel chapter 19. There we find where King David had a son by the name of Absalom. You remember Absalom usurped the throne. He tried to take over uh, the kingdom. He tried to have his father killed. And as David and those who were loyal to him were running, uh, trying to preserve the king and their own lives, ultimately Absalom was, was killed. And when the news was brought to David that his son Absalom was killed, rather than thank his men for saving his life, it says he wept bitterly. In fact, it was so much so that Joab, the commander of David's army, said in 2 Samuel 19.6, By loving those who hate you and by hating those who love you, you have shown today that princes and servants are nothing to you. For I know this day that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Would David really have been happy if all of those loyal to him were killed? No. But his love for his son was so much higher that it made his, his love for others around him look like hatred in comparison. So as Jesus is speaking here, he's saying that our love for God should be so great and above all else that it makes our love for anything else, people, possessions, look like hatred in comparison. Maybe this will help explain what we're talking about here. When I perform a wedding, I get to stand on platforms like this and various venues, and I'll have the, the bride and the groom standing right there in front of me. I have a, a up-close, personal you know, view of them. I've met with this couple for months, usually in advance, through various premarital counseling, so I know them. We've planned their day. I'm looking out at two that I'm going to marry here in October, smiling at me. Yeah, that's us. We're going to do that. And when that day comes, 
They're going to stand there, and they're going to be staring into each other's eyes, and they're going to be so enraptured in that moment. I, I, you know, I get this up. I get to see this. Now, sometimes they look scared to death, and that, that's okay, too, because they, they're making a lifetime commitment, so they should be a little scared. But they're staring into each other's eyes, and as they say, I forsake all others for you alone. It's like they're the only ones in the room. It doesn't matter that I'm literally right there. It's like you don't exist. And it doesn't matter that the, the platform is filled with their best friends, their wedding parties, or those they grew up with, or family members that are their closest. The seats are full of, of family and friends, some who have traveled from long distances. Maybe they haven't seen them in years. And under any other circumstance, this, this couple would sit down with their, their guest and they would spend hours and hours catching up and lingering. But at the wedding, they give you a quick hug and they go, get out of here, we want to be alone, Right? They leave, and, and, and there at the reception, there's often a table piled up with gifts. It's stuff they put down on a registry, and, and you know they're not over there looking at all the goodies going, oh, isn't this great? They're making goo-goo eyes at each other. It's like the people and the stuff don't even exist because that love for one another is so intense at that moment. Is that what your love for God looks like? As you think about God, does everything else fade away? When is the last time you were just lost in worship? When is the last time you sat down with your Bible and and you just read and read and read and lost all track of time? Friends, do you realize that this is God's love letter to you and me? This is where God says, I love you. And he tells us how much he loves us. When is the last time you spent and lingered in his word? When is the the last time that you um, spent extended time in prayer? You know, those we love, we sit down and we talk with for for hours and hours. This is going to date me a little, but back in the 80s when I was dating my wife, uh, I was a couple years ahead of her at college, so I had already graduated from uh, UT Austin. And uh, you can hiss now, uh, Aggies, there you go. And so I was back in Dallas working, and she was still down in Austin. And this was before the days, I know, shudder to think about this, iPhones and, and FaceTime and things where you didn't have to pay for long distance. There are many in the room who still remember that long distance was very expensive. And so what I would do is when I would call Kim, you would schedule it, and you would, I, had, I had this egg timer, and I would literally set it. Okay, can I afford 10 minutes, 15 minutes? What can I afford? And I would set that because I knew as I was talking to Kim on the phone that I would lose track of time and I could go bankrupt. And so (laughs) as you're talking on the phone, that timer would go ding and you go, okay, I love you. I got to go. And you'd hang up. And you'd go. And then the bill would come, you know, at the end of the month, you know, and you'd see all that long distance charges. And that's why you needed a second job back then, right? And, but, you know, when you got that bill, you didn't, you didn't grumble about the cost because you're like, I love that person. It was a privilege to talk to them, to spend that time. Do you do that in prayer? As you think about your devotion to God, is it, is it more of a burden or a blessing? whether it's the gifts that you give to him of your time or treasure or, or the way that you spend with him, do you see him as an intrusion in your world or, or does he really have first place in your life? 
Now, I'm not saying that following God is always easy. In fact, Jesus tells us here in verse 27 that there are costs that come to being committed to him. He says, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You see, Rome was in power. And remember, the Roman cross was a death sentence. And and in that day, people knew when somebody was sentenced to die because Rome would literally tie the beam to your back and you would walk through the street. And, And everybody watched the condemned person going through the streets. They wanted to be an example to everybody. See, this is what the death penalty looks like. And as you walk down the street, the condemned person with this cross on their back, people knew you were on a one-way trip. You were on your way to die. And so when Jesus talks about carrying our cross as believers, he says that those who look at us should see that we're on a one-way trip. That we're on a one-way trip following him. There's no turning back to our old lifestyle of sin. There's no turning aside to pursue the the things of the world. He says we are to love him. We are to pursue him. That is to be our full focus. As you think about your life, can people see that you're you're on a one-way trip as a follower of Jesus? Or is the only cross that they see in your life maybe a piece of jewelry or a a T-shirt that you wear sometimes that has a cross on it? You know, we live in a day where the cross has become a fashion statement. People who are not even Christians wear crosses. And when I see those type of uh, articles or people that, that you know are not followers of Christ, but they're all excited about their, you know, fashionista, you know, crosses and things, I want to I go up and say to somebody like that, would you wear an electric chair around your neck? Would, would, would you put a, a syringe representing lethal injection on a T-shirt and say, this is cool? Because that's what the cross was. The cross was a sign of the death penalty. It was the most brutal way you could die. It's like wearing an electric chair around your neck. And as Jesus talks about taking up the cross of Christ, it means we fully identify with who he is and what he did. It means we surrender to God's will. It means that we die to ourselves, to our own plans and our ambitions, that we will do what Christ calls us to do, even if it means sacrifice, even if it means surrender, suffering, and shame. Without the cross, Christ would not be our Savior, and there would be no forgiveness our sins. We need to understand fully what the cross of Jesus means. And when Jesus tells the crowd here to carry their cross, remember he's on his way to Jerusalem. He knows where he's going and why he's going there. He's made very clear in Luke 13, I am going to Jerusalem to die. And he wants them to understand, if you're going to call yourself a follower of mine, that this is what it means. It means sacrifice. It means setting aside everything to follow him. Back in uh, November 16th of 1994, the USA Today had a headline article uh, that said sacrifice in all capital letters. Front page of USA Today, sacrifice. And as you read the accompanying article, what it said is the 27 women on America 3 have left home and families for a part in sailing history. They left it all to be part of an all-woman crew working toward the goal of winning the prize 
of the America's Cup. They left it all. For what? A shiny piece of metal that was going to sit in a trophy case at the yacht club and the very next year it could be lost again if they didn't win the next regatta? Is that really worth sacrifice? Is that really worth pursuing and setting aside everything? Does that sound like what you're pursuing in your own life? As you think about what it is that you're sacrificing for, what you're pursuing, what is it? A promotion at work? A new car? A bigger house? Are you uh, skimping so you can save money for that vacation? Are you cutting back on meals so you can fit into some piece of clothing that you want to wear? I mean, we make sacrifices all the time to go after a goal, don't we? And I'm not saying not to do those things, but I'm saying to have a proper perspective. As we think about sacrifice, we're so willing to do those things for so much stuff in the world. But when is the last time we really sacrificed to go after God? If you read Philippians chapter 3, there we find the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3, 13 through 14, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul uses running language here. Have you ever watched a race where as the runners are coming to the finish line, they are literally leaning in and they're giving every last bit of effort, so much so that they often throw themselves over the finish line and they fall to the ground exhausted. And this is Paul. Paul says, I was pursuing the things of the world. I was running after them, but then I encountered Christ and I realized what was really important. Remember, Paul, if you read Philippians 3, you see his resume. He was one of the religious leaders. He was in the the upper echelon. He was the, the aristocrat, highly educated. He had the up and the right career. He was pursuing and, and hitting all the pinnacles of his profession. Paul was going to the top. And then he encountered the resurrected Lord on the road to Damascus. And he realized what he had been pursuing was the dead-end road of the world. And he recognized who Jesus was, the resurrected Lord, the promised Messiah. And he turned to Jesus Christ. And he said, the pursuit of my life now is to follow Christ and to attain to growth and godliness, to look like Jesus. And as Paul said this, he didn't say, uh, as I follow Christ, I lost it all. That's not what Philippians says. He says, I suddenly saw it for what it was. Worthless stuff. He says, when I compared the permanent and imperishable gift of eternal life and the rewards that come in living your life for the Lord, he said, I realized what all the stuff of the world was. He said, I counted it as rubbish. The the Greek word that is used there is is very graphic. It it speaks of what your physical body produces in terms of of human excrement. I'm not going to tell you the Greek word because you'll run around saying it, right? But Paul said, literally, when you think of what your body produces, that's what it was. He said, I looked at everything I had acquired in life, and yeah, that was it. As you look at what you're pursuing, what you're, you're investing your life in, what is it? Here's a, here's a simple way to think about it. I want you to fast forward your life to the day you die. 
I want you to think about uh, you standing at your own grave and you're looking at your tombstone. As you look at the epitaph that, that, that is going to be there on your tombstone, what is it going to say? If you put what you are pursuing in your life on your tombstone, what will it say? Salesman of the year? President? CEO? Number one in her class? Lettered in such and such sport? You know, I spend a lot of time in cemeteries. It's, it's not a hobby of mine. It's part of my job. And when I, when I go to bury a believer, I'm, I'm there often before anybody else gets there. And I walk around and I look at tombstones. And in 20 years of walking around looking at tombstones, I can tell you I've never once seen any of those things on a tombstone. And why not? Because in the end, those things just aren't important, are they? You know what you find on tombstones? Follower of Jesus, servant of the Lord, beloved mother or father, son or grandson. It's, it's the relationships, first and foremost with Jesus Christ and the relationships with one another that counts. We talked about this last week. We, we saw that there are only two things that last for all eternity, the word of God and the eternal souls of people. And as you look at what you're investing your life in, what you're pursuing, is it the things of the world that are going to burn up and perish one day, that aren't even worthy of being chiseled into your tombstone? Or is it the things of lasting value? Will you respond to Jesus' call to come and follow him? Now, before you say you will, remember Jesus is turning and he's saying to the crowd, I want you to count the cost. I want you to see if you really mean it, which is why he goes on and he tells two parables that we see next here in Luke chapter 14. The first one is found in verses 28 through 30. Jesus says, for which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying this man began to build and he was not able to finish. You see, remember, they're on a road, they're walking along. And so Jesus is looking around at the countryside. And when you read that somebody built a tower, again, what you may picture are these towers that you would see on city walls. And, and there were those in the fortified cities. They had these large uh, battlement type of towers. But there were also lots of towers sprinkled all throughout the land. Because if you had a field as a farmer, you would build a tower in your field. And the, the tower had several purposes. And so these things were about two to three stories high. So as Jesus is walking along the road, he's able to say, you see these towers? There's maybe one over here being constructed. There could just be a foundation that they walked by. And Jesus says, who begins to build a tower without first considering the cost? And what they would do is they would lay a stone foundation. And they would build this uh, base up with stones for the, these things would be two to three stories high. So really good towers would have two to three stories of stone around them. And then on the top would be this platform that had a covering, a, a, a wood roof type of thing. And, and that tower was there for a number of purposes. One is that the watchman could go up into the tower. He is above the crop so he can look out, see is there anybody trying to steal from the field during the harvest? Are there animals that are you know, running throughout the, the grain and destroying things? 
And it would also be the place where when a crop was harvested, they would bring it in and they would put it in this secure base. It protected it from not only the elements, but from animals and thieves who might be coming along to steal. Now, Jesus says, uh, if you're building a tower and all you end up with is the foundation, he says, it's not really going to do it's what it was designed for, is it? I mean, if you pile your crops up there, the weather's going to ruin it. Animals and thieves can take it. If you're a watchman and you're standing on this little stone base, you, you can't really see above the crops. So he says the, the tower's pretty much uh, not, not what it was designed for. And he says when people walk along and they see that, they're going to laugh at you. They're going to say, well, that was great planning. You started something you couldn't finish. You, you, you have this, this great foundation, but where's the rest of it? And he says you're going to be mocked and ridiculed. And, and we see that in our day as well, right? Jesus says as you think about coming to faith in him, you can say you're a follower of Jesus. But if you never grow, if you never build on that, those who know you are going to look at you and they're going to, they're going to laugh and say, just a phase, wasn't it? Yeah, I, didn't, I, I knew you'd be no different. Or uh, they're going to mock you and say, well, you're a hypocrite. You know, you're just like everybody else in the world. And, and what Jesus is saying is he wants us to think about what it means to be a follower of his. Now, here's something I want you to make sure you, you understand about this passage we're in. When Jesus says, which one of us considers the cost and then is able to finish it, I want you to think in terms of your own salvation. Jesus Christ counted the cost. He knew very clearly what it meant. It meant he was going to Jerusalem. He was going to die. He was going to shed his blood to pay the penalty of death. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And Jesus died to pay for our salvation. He said, I know what it's going to cost. And I'm willing to pay the cost. And he finished what he started because in John 19.30, it literally says, as you read your, your English translation, it is finished. And what that means is, it's the Greek word teteleste, it means paid in full. Jesus says the penalty for sin was paid in full at the cross. My blood washed away the sins of all who will come and receive me. The way we live our lives doesn't determine whether we get home to heaven. Remember last week, the passage we looked at, Jesus was talking about who is invited to the feast. There he was talking about salvation. You become a believer, he said, by placing your faith in me, by accepting the invitation. What he's talking about now is discipleship. Once you are a believer, that you live for him. And we'll unpack that a little further as we go. So I want to make sure you understand the difference here. When you read Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. Salvation is a gift, bought and paid for by Jesus, held out that invitation we looked at last week, and he says, Have you received it? That is the foundation. Are we clear so far? That's the foundation. Do you know what the very next verse, we always quote Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Do you know what Ephesians 2, 10 says? The very next verse in Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He just said you're not saved by works, but he says you are saved for good works. So once we come to faith, we are then to build 
on that foundation. I said that foundation is our faith. Listen to 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15. It tells us, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, these are the things of lasting value versus the worthless things of the world, he says, wood, hay, straw. Each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Now, if you were here a few weeks ago, you'll remember what we're looking at here in that passage is called the Bema Judgment Seat. Do you remember the Bema Toss? Bema is the Greek word that is used here, and it describes the judgment that the Christian stands before. I know I'm bringing in a whole lot of stuff. This is why, you know, if you haven't been here and have been keeping up with the sermon, you can go back online and hear some of this. But what the Bible tells us is there are two judgments. The non-Christian goes to something called the great white throne judgment. That is for non-believers. Read in Revelation 20 about the great white throne judgment. It says anybody who has rejected Jesus as their savior will have to pay the penalty of death themselves, which is why those who are at the great white throne are sent to the second death called the lake of fire, what we call hell. A believer in Jesus does not go before the great white throne judgment. A believer in Jesus will not go to hell 2 Corinthians 5, 8 says, for a believer to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And when we die and we go into the presence of the Lord, we are judged, not to see if we get into heaven. Jesus bought the ticket on the cross for the believer. But what he judges us is to see, what did you do with your life once you accepted my gift? You see, the parable here is speaking of the, the tower. And he says, you have a foundation Jesus Christ. And he says, are you building on it as a disciple, a follower? What are you doing to grow in godliness, to live your life for the Lord? And this is the judgment. You see, 1 Corinthians 3 goes on to say, if any man's work, which he is built upon, it built upon what? The foundation, which is, it says, Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 3.11. If any man's work, which he is built upon, it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet is through fire. So what it's telling us is when we go through the gates of heaven, we are welcomed home because of the payment of Jesus Christ as a believer. But he says your life is put into the fire, not you, your life works. And the wood, hay, stubble, the worthless things of the world that you pursued that had no lasting value are burned up. And he says, some of us are going to smell like smoke. He says, you're going to have nothing left. Because your life was lived in a way that served you, not your Savior. Your life was pursuing the worthless things of the world, not building the eternal things of God. Now he says, the things of value, you refine gold, you put it in the fire. He says, those are going to be taken out. I told you it's this Greek word, bematos, bema. It's, it's literally used of the Olympic medal stand in, that you see when the Olympics come around, where they hang a gold medal around somebody's neck and say, you ran well. It's where Jesus will say, well done, good and faithful servant. He'll give you your rewards. Now, we receive something called crown rewards in heaven. So as you think in terms of your life, think of it as a construction site. God says, I've given you a foundation. 
And this foundation is for a skyscraper. It goes down multiple floors. It's this deep foundation. It it will stand against all else. And he says, you can build to the full height as Paul was pursuing of who Jesus is. But some of us are going to have this little shack that we built with reclaimed pallets we dug out of the trash somewhere. And he says, when judgment day comes, it all burns up. And the only thing left is what you cannot lose, the gift of salvation that God bought for you. It's why you hear me say God loves you like you are, but he loves you too much to leave you like you are. Romans 5, 8 says God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He says you're not saved by how good you are. He says you're saved by what God's son did for you. But once you come to faith, he says, I want you to begin to live a life worthy of your position in Christ to grow and build and do these good works that Ephesians 10 says we were, we were saved for. Now, as we do this, there are going to be challenges and costs. Remember the disciples that were following Jesus, uh, most of them died as martyrs for their faith in the first century. There are Christians today who are dying for their faith. I don't know if you realize this, but there are more Christians who have been martyred for their faith in the last 100 years than all of the history combined before that. There are more Christians persecuted and killed in our day than there were in the first century and all the uh, other 19 centuries combined. Most of us sitting here will probably never ever face a point where we will have to decide, will you deny Jesus Christ or die? I've been in countries around the world where that is a decision. I've talked to people who have not only been in prison and tortured, but have had family members killed in some of these countries that I've gone in to teach in underground churches and in seminaries. There are people who face that decision. But you and I face a decision as well. We may not have to die physically, but Jesus says as a believer in me, will you die daily? Will you die daily? I want you to look at Luke 9.23. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If you write in your Bible, circle that word daily, underline it, highlight it. Because what it says is this is not a one-time event like it might be if we're facing a martyr's death. But it is a daily dying to ourselves as we live our life for Jesus. Let me illustrate it this way. Imagine that God says, here's a check. It's for an enormous amount of money. And he says, this represents your life. And he says, what I want you to do is to endorse the check and give it back to me. And he says, for some, as a believer, I'm going to ask you to cash that check all at once. And you're going to have to die for your faith. And he says, but for others of you, as you endorse that check, I'm going to tell you, I want you to go to the bank and I want you to cash it in. Not for big bills, but for some dollars, for quarters, for dimes, for nickels, for pennies. And I want you to live your life in a way where you're dying daily. Instead of giving it all at once, I want you to give it a dollar at a time as you teach a class. I want you to spend 25 cents as you serve in some situation. I want you to drop a dime uh, when you go and you serve in the children's ministry. I want you to give a nickel when you uh, serve in Hebrews or in the student ministry. I want you to spend pennies at a time as you show acts of kindness. 
And he says, I want you to live your life dying daily. And as you think in terms of that, many of us say, you know, I'd rather cash it in all at once. I'd rather have that blaze of glory where I'm some famous martyr and, and I'm like Jim Elliott, right? Who's, who's famous for having given his life along with several other missionaries as martyrs. And, and Jim Elliott understood what we're talking about. He wrote in his journal before he faced that decision of dying, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He says, my life is perishable, it's passing. He says, only a fool would hold on to their physical life and potentially lose eternal life. And many of us are faced not with the decision of giving it all at once, but what God says is, I want you to die daily. Out of the spotlight where nobody sees you, pennies, nickels, dimes at a time. That's hard, isn't it? But that's what it means to follow Jesus, to be a disciple of his. We, we go through life like this and we say, this is mine, my life, my stuff. And what God says is when you clench your hands, he says, there's two things that happen. One, it's going to hurt a lot more when I have to pry your fingers open. And the other, he says, is I want to fill your hands with stuff. But the problem is you, you've already got just junk in your hands. And he says, if you would open it up and release those things, I could fill them with blessings beyond anything that you could imagine. In verses 31 through 32, he tells us a second parable. This time he uses the image of an approaching battle. He says, or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and, make, and take counsel whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and he asks for terms of peace. As you think of this illustration of war, what is the absolute worst thing that you think can happen in war to you? Well, I could die. That's pretty bad, isn't it? Not if you're a believer. For the Christian, death is not something we have to fear because when our earthly life is over, it means we've had our promotion. We have our promotion home to heaven. It's why Paul could say in Philippians 1.21, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, if I live on in this life, and he wrote those words in a prison as he was facing death. He says, if God leaves me here, it means further ministry and encouragement and spreading the gospel. But he says, well, if I die, that's even better. Because I go home and I receive what I've been pursuing. I receive the rewards I get to see my Savior face to face. Now, we live in a world where there is a battle, a real battle, a spiritual battle that takes place. And we have a strong enemy. His name is Satan. But we don't have to fear Satan because 1 John 4, 4 tells us, greater is he that is in you, the Holy Spirit, than he that is in the world, Satan. And so as we face our enemy, if you're, if you're saying, well, am I strong enough to do battle with the enemy? The answer is yes. Not based upon who you are, your power, but it's through God's power. It's, it's why as God sends us out to, to do uh, his mission, as he tells us in Matthew 28, to go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. He, he ends by telling us there, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He says, you're not alone. God will never give you an assignment that he doesn't give you the resources and the power in order to do it, but it has to be done in dependence on him 
not yourself or your own abilities. In Luke 14, uh, 33, Jesus says, So therefore, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Again, if you write in your Bible, circle that word own, and you can put an arrow to the front of that, that verse because in the Greek text, the word own is at the front of the clause because it's there to emphasize the word own. And what that means is God is saying, let me make something very clear to you. You don't own anything. You see, we say, well, this is my stuff. And God says, no, it's not. It's mine. He says, I simply give you a loan. Your life is on loan from God. The breath you breathe, the strength you have, the the intellectual or skill that you have, those are gifts from God. He says, the things you've acquired, those are gifts from me. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. He says, you don't own those ranches. Uh, I don't own a ranch. Some of you do. But he says, that's not your ranch. It's mine. And he says, those are the kind of things that we go through life saying, these are mine. So when we read a passage like this, we say, oh, so what it means to be a follower of Jesus is I have to be in poverty. I have to liquidate everything I have, my portfolio and and my property and all those things. And God says, that's not what I'm asking you to do. What does the Bible say? We are stewards, managers of the things that belong to God. You know what a steward is? Have you ever been on a cruise ship? And they have that steward that is there. And it's a person who says to you, um, I represent the company. And while you're on this boat, I take all the resources of the company and they're here for your comfort and pleasure. I'm here to serve you, to take the things that don't belong to me personally, but that belong to the cruise line and to use them for your enjoyment. Back in the day when flight attendants were called stewardesses, it was the same thing. They don't own the plane. They don't own the snacks and the drinks. You know, as they come down the aisle and and they get that little cup with that much ice and they pour a little bit of drink. And have you ever said, "Um, can I have the whole can, please? And they give you that look like, you want the whole can (laughs) of Coke, you know? And and you're saying, yeah, could I have the whole can? They don't go, gosh, it's mine. They go, well, it belongs to the airline. Sure, here's a, here's a can of Coke. James says you have not because you ask not, right? So ask for the can of Coke. <laughs> I asked for Dr. Pepper, but only Southwest has Dr. Pepper. So my point as I digress onto that squirrel limb over there is um, they're stewards. It's not their stuff. They're there to say, how can I serve you on this journey with what has been uh, given to me to be used for your comfort on the trip? And as you think about life, brothers and sisters, all the stuff we have is not ours. It's God's. And he says, I've given it to you to help others on this journey called life, to help others to come to know my son Jesus, to use your stuff for the glory of God, to spread the good news of the gospel. And he says, the benefit is you get to enjoy it while you're on that same journey. It's an entrustment to us. So understanding that helps us when we read what we have, we're to give up because we realize, well, it's not mine anyway. Who cares? Ron Blue says of stewardship, it is the use of God-given resources for the accomplishment of God-given goals. And this includes understanding that not even our lives are ours or stewardship from God. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? Now listen to this. And that you are not your own. 
For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Everything we have is God's. How are you doing in handling God's stuff? What are you doing with God's stuff? Whether it's the breath in your body, the time that you have, the treasures that you have. Now, Jesus closes this part of the passage by saying in verses 34 through 35, Therefore, salt is good. But if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is to be thrown out. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, we read that and we go, well, salt? I can go to the grocery store and I can buy a big container of salt for a buck. So why is Jesus suddenly talking about salt? Again, remember, we're talking to a first century audience. In that context, salt was extremely valuable. In fact, it was so precious, it was part of the way that a Roman soldier was paid his wages. Have you ever heard the saying, he's not worth his salt? Well, that's where it comes from. They're saying he's not worth his pay. And so salt was very precious. But the problem with the salt in that day, it was, a, it was an inferior product to what we have in our day. It wasn't mined from deep within salt mines and things. Much of it came from evaporated seawater. And so it was this, this fragile impurity thing that if it came in contact with moisture or with the, the earth, it would have its, its properties of saltiness leached away and it became nothing more than just kind of worthless granules. That's why Matthew 5.13, Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And what this says is if as a believer we've lost our purpose, if we're not salt in the world, light in the world, he says... You know, essentially we can be thrown out and trampled underfoot. It's like dragging the name of Jesus through the dirt. If we've lost our witness. As you look at how you're living your life, does it make people thirsty? Have you ever had salty something and go, I'm thirsty. Does your life make people thirsty for a relationship with Jesus? Do they look at you and say, I want what you have? What is it that you have, that peace, that, that, that thing in your life or has your life lost its saltiness? Now, salt was not only used for pay, it was also a preservative. Before refrigeration, the way you kept meat from spoiling was to salt it. And as you look at your life, what God says is we're to be getting out of the salt shaker here in the church and we're to be out in the world sprinkling salt around as a preservative as the society and world are decaying and dying and dark. He says we're to be out in the world standing as a preservative, pointing people to the word, to, to the Lord of life, Jesus Christ. Salt was also used as an antiseptic. Some of you soak your feet or an injury in Epsom salt. If you've got a sore throat, you'll gargle with salt water. Do you see all the, the pictures of what God is calling us to be as a disciple? As I said, God wants us to get out of the salt shaker and into the world. So as we close today, I want you to think of your life. As you walk out of Wayside Chapel, the salt shaker, so to speak, and God sprinkles you in your schools, your workplaces, the bases, other places where you're going to go, what are you going to do when you get there? As we look at the passage today, if you've never had a personal relationship with Jesus, if you haven't started with that foundation, I want you to start there. To recognize you're lost without Jesus, to ask him to be your personal savior. 
And once we come to Christ, Jesus tells us he wants us to grow in our walk with him. He wants us to be these stones for building his church, a soldier for battling the enemy, and salt that is going to be out bettering the world. I want us to go to the Lord in prayer as we prepare to sing this closing song of worship. And I want you to think about your life and where you are in your walk with God and ask God what, he, um, what you need to do to be a soldier who battles in the spiritual realm, to be a, a stone that is used for building the body of Christ, building up others, to be salt in the world where you're a preservative, where you are one who attracts people to Jesus. Will you join me, please, as we go to the Lord in prayer? Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us about who you are and your great love for us. We thank you, Jesus, for what it calls us to, a commitment to be followers of yours, to be men and women, boys and girls who are serious about our walk with you, those who are willing to take up our cross and die daily, to live lives of purpose that will point people to who you are. So as we leave, Jesus, as we go out of the salt shaker and into the world, would you use us to be salt and light in a dark and dying world. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.